Good People, Cool Things is a podcast featuring conversations with entrepreneurs, writers, musicians, and other creatives. Get inspired by their stories to do your own cool thing. And here's your host, Joey Held. Welcome to Good People, Cool Things. Hope you've got your sneakers ready and your basketballs pumped and full of air because we are chatting hoops and writing with Craig Leaner, author of the This Was Never About Basketball trilogy, which also includes the books All Roads Lead to Lawrence and the most recent This Was Always About Basketball. Craig and I go back basically to his first books. We've been chatting hoops for the last few years, and he shares his writing process how he was inspired, how he keeps track of everything in a trilogy. I can barely keep track of what day it is and what I ate earlier today. And Craig manages all three books deftly so that they work together as a trilogy, but also are great standalone reads as well. Craig also has experience in radio, TV, film, HR. He's been all over the place. He's done plenty, and he's sharing all kinds of good stuff on this episode. If you'd like to support good people, cool things, This is the last week of the sale celebrating a year of the podcast. Head on over to goodpeoplecoolthings.com slash shop. Pick up a sweater, shirt, hat, mug, some wall art. Hang it up on the wall. You know, you got those Zoom meetings. You want something good behind you. I'm not trying to get like a barren wall behind me. Why not have some fun food pun art to hang up behind you? Get people talking. And when you get up to leave to go get tea or coffee or something, you'll have a nice background behind you. Or maybe you'll just turn your video off like I do. In any case, it's good stuff. You just got to head over there. Anything you get is 20% off. Take advantage of it. You don't even need a code. Super simple, super easy, super wonderful, just like this conversation with Craig. If people don't know who Craig Leaner is, give us your elevator pitch and tell us what kind of elevator that we're riding on while you're telling us about yourself. Uh, it's a pretty zippy one. Uh, born and raised in, in the San Fernando Valley in Southern California. Uh, played some high school basketball, uh, went to college, worked in um, film operations uh, at Warner Brothers and Disney for a while. Got into post-production and human resources management. Drifted into sports writing. And then as I kind of eased into retirement, I began writing young adult novels. and. Uh, there we are. We're about to the 15th or 16th floor now. <laughs> it's a very speedy elevator. I like it. I like it. And do you think that your we've known each other just in that that latter phase of the the book writing? Do you think that everything else kind of laddered up to that? Like your post production experience? Obviously, you're playing basketball. I think there's a, a big impact in a trilogy about basketball. But does everything else did that were you kind of pulling from that as you were writing these books? I think so. Uh, I think at least in the first one, the sum total of my life ended up in that first book. Like every everything I've ever done, any cool uh, saying I've ever heard, it's all in there. Uh, and then I, when I started to write the second book, I kind of had to go from scratch. Uh, but the time I spent in human resources management, uh, hiring and firing people and all things in between, uh, getting to understand human nature better certainly has helped me to uh, design these characters. I agree. I think the writing is super easy to get into and, and relatable. And I'm like, I hear people talk like this all the time. It's great. You, you mentioned the cool sayings. Do you have a favorite saying from either the first book or any of the ones in the trilogy? Boy, uh, I guess that would probably be um, violence as a means of resolving conflict doesn't work. 
Nice. Yes. I like that one too. I like that one too. I think if more people uh, embrace that one, then the world would be a lot better, in a lot better shape. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Someone else, I can't remember if this was on Twitter or elsewhere, but I saw something of like, what would you want uh, a billboard to say? Like if you, if you could get a billboard in like downtown Los Angeles and the, the top response was something like, be kind to each other. And I was like, thank you. Like, that's very simple. I like it. You're not selling anything. Get it. And then someone below them said, buy my book. And I was like, that's also good. I'd have <laughs> be kind to each other at the top, buy my book and the lower. And within this trilogy, I know we've talked about this a little bit on previous podcasts, longtime fans of, I can't even say good people, cool things, because you've been on other iterations of previous podcasts that I've done. But we've talked a little bit about your writing process and kind of putting this trilogy together. But at that point, first time, you had done one book. The second time you had done the second book. Now you've done three books. With that third book, how was how did you bring it all together? Did you have that kind of planned or was that just a, a process as you were writing it? Well, with the first one, I just wanted to get through it. And before I started, I told everybody that I knew that I was writing a book, so I had nowhere to run if I never finished it. Uh, I got this idea when I, when I finished the first one to leave a door ajar in the last chapter, uh, just in case. And then my editor said, we, we should keep going. So then uh, the sequel came forward and uh, I, same philosophy again, where I kept it a little bit ajar there in the last chapter. And, and uh, she, Judy Gittenstein was her name. She encouraged me to, um, to keep going because the story arc was too high. So um, at that point, uh, I guess it was a pandemic aided situation. I wrote the entire first draft in about four months uh, and tried really hard to, um, make it a standalone, bring in backstory so that you could pick it up as itself as, as a third book and understand what's going on and wrap it up, uh, not too tightly. You know, you can't really lace it up like a boxing glove. You have to give it a little bit of breathing room so the reader can sort of figure out some things on his or her own at the end. So there's definitely a process there. I had a lot of editorial help uh, from my, my crew um, and we finally got there. It's, it was a pretty exciting um, ride the, the whole way. Did you find that you, you mentioned the pandemic fueled uh, first draft? Did you find it was easier to write with, uh, I guess, well, I don't want to say minimal distractions because just, you know, looking at the world around us during a pandemic can be pretty distracting, but without, um, you know, with that kind of added element to it, did you find it more difficult, easier, or about the same as the first day? I think I was able to lock in a little more readily because I know I didn't have a lot of distractions. I mean, other than the global distraction, uh, <laughs> I was able to uh, compartmentalize that and deal with it either before or after my writing sessions. And as far as kind of keeping everything fluid, you you said this is a standalone book, like it can it can serve as that. And I agree. I think it it reads very well on its own. But there is a lot brought back from the first two books. Is that difficult to keep track of everything? I feel like when I'm writing a short story, sometimes I forget what just happened like two pages ago. So how do you how do you keep everything? Do you have like a giant, uh, like one of those boards with the yarn attaching everyone or or some other way that you keep track of everything? Uh, with the beginning of each uh, book, I have a three by four foot piece of builder's paper that I outline the, the entire eight point story arc on that. And so I have those uh, visualizations of what is on each of the books. Uh, between that and just remembering where everything is, that's how I'm able to do it. And then when it comes time for backstory, 
what I would actually do is I would I would um, copy that out of Microsoft Word uh, from the previous book and just paste it um, into the story and, and then start to kind of carve it up and, and change some words and, and sort of you know shoehorn it into the story in a way that um, you know doesn't tell too much but just enough to keep a reader um, you know turned on the pages. Did you have any uh, either an aha moment or like a hitting the wall moment while you were writing this or was it just head down get it done? Boy, uh, mostly aha moments. Um, I guess uh, you know when I do hit the occasional writer's block, I have the good fortune of having a, a basketball court in the backyard, so I'm able to shoot free throws to get back into a rhythm. Uh, but with this one, I got the idea for the story for um, uh, time travel when I was paying a visit to a place called the Kamal Dali. Uh, Catholic hermitage up in the mountains in Big Sur, California, a uh, place that I go about once a year that you have to take a vow of silence when you go there, except when you're actually in the church hearing the monks chant. So I was up there sort of hanging out for a couple of days. And just before one of the prayer sessions there, I sat in this chapel. Um, and I'm a Jewish kid from the valley. So, you know, um, I have a lot of uh, interesting roots, you know, Eastern leanings and so forth. And I sat down with a number two pencil and a journal and kind of channeled the first chapter. It just sort of came through the, through the air. And then uh, once I got home, I transcribed it and kept going. Nice, nice. I feel like you're always, uh, you always have very good stories of inspiration and, and making, uh, getting the starts of these, these books going. And I think they're great jumping off points for sure. Yeah, you know, for the second one, I went to visit my dad uh, at a, a cemetery where he's buried up in the north end of the valley. And, uh, had this conversation with him like I often do when I go to see him and uh, I said to him hey if you know kind of struggling with my story right now if you know of anything from the hereafter if you wouldn't mind passing it along and so uh so I'm driving home from there uh and my wife usually accompanies me on this journey and this time she was under the weather so I'm driving home I'm starting to get this idea about human consciousness not being tethered to the human brain I don't know where it came from as I'm driving along the 118 freeway heading west uh home and then my concentration is, is just interrupted but the phone rang just my wife she asked me to stop into the into whole foods and pick her up what's called a wellness shot which is this thing where they make a, a lemon juice and, and ginger and uh, apple juice and some cayenne pepper and it sort of stimulates your immune system and i thought okay well all right i guess i'm going to do this i walk into whole foods and the place is a mecca of commerce and i realize holy smokes it's super bowl sunday so there's lines everywhere. It takes me forever to buy this stuff. And while I'm waiting for them to make it, I grab a basket and I walk around the prepared food section, throw some things into the basket just to sort of kill time. I pay for the drink. I go to the check stand to pay for the things that I bought. And the woman there rings it up. And she says, that'll be $19.26. And I kind of looked at her like, what? And she goes, 1926. And of course, that's my father's birth year. You know, and everything I was buying was random and it, it could have been any amount and it was that amount. And it, that was in that moment, I knew I was onto something. Yeah, that's such a, it's such a cool story. Uh, and do you, do you remember the random things that you bought or just, <laughs> just the total? Yeah. <laughs> Pork spare ribs and uh, some miso soup and um, truffle cheese. Nice. That's a good combo. That's a good combo. I, other yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I went, uh, I was actually at the grocery store earlier today. I just kind of was moseying around as 
As you've seen in the news, the Texas uh, winter storms have been hitting hard out here, and this is kind of the first day where it's been a little sunnier and ice starting to melt and everything. And I was just really craving a breakfast taco, so I'm like, let me see what's open. Like, just kind of drive. There's a you know a few places not too too far by, so I was driving by them all. They all had tremendously long lines, and I was like, okay, maybe I can stop at the grocery store, pick up some materials, and make some at home. We've got tortillas at home; we can do it. And uh, it was just it was almost like a almost like a dystopian kind of feeling uh, in in half of the store the the parts with like the prepared foods and the produce were all like fully stocked but anything bakery meat uh, or refrigerated was like just totally picked apart I was telling my friend who's a very purist uh, with his pizza he's like pepperoni and that's basically it he won't put anything else on. I told him that there were two frozen pizzas left. They were both broccoli crust, and which I've never even seen before. And I'd like to think, like, I'll give cauliflower crust a try. I'm not, I'm not opposed to it. But I was like, broccoli crust, that's a new one. And I told him, and he's just like, why are they making these abominations? So, uh, it's largely wild. because it's gluten free. I think that's probably why they're doing it. Yeah, that was that was very uh, largely advertised on the box as well. So. Um, but yeah, I, I like the I like the variety uh, of, of crusts out there. Let's mix it up. But my uh, my experience was a little less um, motivating and and uh, you know inspirational as yours was. But still, um, just it's just so wild just seeing you know like w- when you'll be struck by things and like you were saying, totally random items. If you had gotten beef ribs instead of pork ribs, maybe that's. <laughs> That's a completely different price, and so just just so cool um, to to hear stuff like that. And I do want to get back to some of the writing process, but of course we've bonded over basketball. The basketball is a big theme in all three of these books, so we got to chat about some hoops moments. When's your your first memory of like, hey, I'm a big fan of basketball? Who, uh, boy, that probably goes back to about 1965 uh, when. Poly Pavilion was under construction. Uh, my father was a UCLA grad and uh, he was the past uh, sports editor of the school paper there, uh, the Daily Bruin, and he was a past president of the Bruin Bench, the alumni organization. So uh, UCLA sports was always around the family. Uh, Edwin Polly, who was a developer, uh, he put out the word that anybody, any alumni who donated money, he would match it to build this arena. And uh, of course, at the time, uh, my dad was just kind of getting his career off the ground, didn't really have the money, he borrowed it. He borrowed money to donate to build the arena. And what that un- entitled him to was two tickets for he and my mom, like center court, and then four of them up in the rafters. And so my sister and brother and I rotated, taking a person in the fourth seat. And I saw every single UCLA home basketball game from 1965 when that thing opened until about 1974 when it was time to do other things with my life. And so every dynasty, um, every... Uh, Every win, and there were a lot of them over there. That's I. That's um, where basketball was instilled in me at that point. Awesome. That's such a such a good like decade of basketball to be watching too. Like, I'm thinking of I'm, I'm a University of Miami graduate, and uh, they lost today by about thirty points, and uh, that's been you know pretty par for the course for this year. Obviously, I think you got to take anything that's happening in in COVID times with a little grain of salt of you know, it being a little uh, a little outside the norm and teams are, are having to deal with injuries and, and sickness and all that. Um, but just, yeah, like what a, what a cool, 
cool experience. Do you, is there a game from that time that particularly stands out to you? Yeah, 1969, uh, LSU came to town and Pete Maravich was averaging something like 40 points a game. And there was a lot of uh, excitement about how the Bruins were going to handle him. So I went to the game. Uh, I took my friend Lloyd with me. We were playing uh, basketball, uh, park league basketball at the time. Uh, great game. Uh, the Bruins held Maravich to something like, I don't know, 27 or something like that. Held him to 27 yeah. points. Fourteen <laughs> on the entire game. And they beat him by like 40 points. It was the most uh, points the Bruins had ever scored. Back then, after the game, you could walk down uh, the steps to the floor, wait for the players to come out and get autographs. You know, this is uh, long before the world in which we live right now has, um, has changed quite a bit. So uh, I got uh, Lou Alcindor's autograph, uh, you know, the future Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and waited and waited and waited for Pete to come out. Came out of the locker room and uh, was sort of stunned by how tall he was. He's about 6'6", six, six, and at the time I was about 5'10". He had the floppy socks on. Didn't look like he was in a very good mood. People came up to him, hey, Pete, Pete. And so I waited patiently, had my autograph book with me, which I'm not even sure people have those anymore. Handed him the book and my pen, and he signed it, Pistol Pete Maravich, gave it back to me. And um, Lloyd put me up to this. I didn't really want to do it, but he made, me, he made me ask. I said, hey, Pete, what was it like to be triple team the entire game? And he, he just sort of froze, and he looked me in the eye, and I thought he was going to take a swing at me. And he just <laughs> said, what do you think, man? And I just said, thank you, and walked away. <laughs> I thought I was in big trouble. You know, back then, you know, the 15-year-old mind. Oh, that's that's fantastic. And agreed. I think, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think I've ever been triple teamed in a game, maybe like, you know, in a tie game at the final second, just because... I, you know, it's obvious I'm going to shoot with one second left, but I can't even imagine that. Like, just the, the amount of work you have to do in a game, and especially someone like Pistol Pete, where, like you said, 27 points, and that's like an off night for him. That's yeah. yeah, he was ass. humbled in, in, that, uh, in that afternoon, for sure. <laughs> and then hopefully remembered what you said for, for days on end and was yeah, just no stewing over it. I, I'm trying to think. My, my mom bought me a Pete Maravich jersey when I was maybe like nine or 10. And I didn't know who he was at the time. I was just like, cause in, in that era, it was Stockton Malone, those, those jazz teams of the nineties. And I was just like, who is like Maravich? Who is that? And she was like, Oh, like, you know, they said he was like the best player ever on the jazz. And then I, it was probably a couple of years before I really understood just how good he was and how, insane uh he, he was on the basketball court um and just like probably one of the best scorers in nba history if not the best and it's it's kind of shocking to think had he played in the three-point era he'd probably averaging like 40 points a game with no no problem yeah he was quite skilled and there are parts of his personality and his game that are in my uh, protagonist uh, zeke archer you know, certainly the socks and just the mentality of basketball is everything. You know, it's your life and it's how you live and breathe and how you read the people around you and how you make sense of the world. It's the prism by which you view this planet. Absolutely. And to uh, to bring Zeke into the current days, how do you think he'd be faring in quarantine life? Just just hooping all, time, all the time? <laughs> oh boy, he'd be doing a lot of spinning with that ball on his index finger. He'd be bleeding a lot, you know. Uh, I guess he would try to find a place to play where he can get away with it. 
Excellent. And you mentioned you have a hoop in your backyard as well. I know you're a very solid, I believe 87% is the career free throw percentage. Has yeah. it improved in quarantine life? Uh, it's stuck at 87, but as I have mentioned to you in the past, it is 100% unverified. <laughs> that's That's been my, I, my like almost pull the trigger on it purchase of the pandemic as a basketball hoop, but just... Have I, f- I feel like we need to do some yard work first to like get more of a a sort of driveway esque area or like you know some sort of asphalt surface because trying to shoot on grass and dribble I doesn't doesn't seem super uh, super enjoyable in terms of having the ball bounce back to me accurately which is you know something you expect when you're dribbling. <laughs> yeah, I can run you through the brief story of how I came to acquire this court. Absolutely. Um, we, we have a pretty good sized backyard here. I'm really blessed to have that. And uh, I guess it was February of um, four years ago or so. My wife asked me what I wanted for my birthday. Of course, jokingly said, I'd love to have a basketball court in the backyard. Next thing I know, there's a meeting between uh, the cement guy and our, and our landscape guy and the pole guy, you know, the guy that uh, sets the, the pole. And they're in the backyard walking around measuring and talking and everything. And you know, what's going on out here? And you know, she arranged for this summit meeting of these, these great men to put this thing together. Uh, one day the cement truck rolled up and you know, four guys on the big hose. And, and uh, about a month later, when everything dried, the striping crew came out and striped it. And so it's like a, like a miniature third of a court, but it has a, an NBA size backboard, three and a half by six feet glass backboard. Uh, and I could raise it or lower it. Uh, one of the little secrets I don't really tell anybody about it, but there's probably um, no more than a few hundred thousand people listening to this, <laughs> this podcast. I have it set at nine and three quarters feet rather than 10. And I call that home court advantage. <laughs> I mean, are people really coming out with a, a tape measure? I think they, I mean, they might, they might recognize it by feel, but I think, I think you could fool most people. Yeah. I give myself a, every break I can out there. <laughs> Well, aside from these podcast listeners, they'll all know uh, the next time they come. But hey, yeah, you got to do a home court advantage. We had that in high school for sure. We'd have the go to a, a road game and they have those stiff rims. And I'm like, ugh, it's one of these places. Yeah, exactly. It's a rough life, rough life. And we've we've kind of talked about this. I'm, I'm sure free throws are a big part of it. But I've been asking people... Any other quarantine hobbies that you've picked up? I mean, you've already written a book and have been shooting hoops, so that's pretty pretty impressive. But anything else that you've you've picked up over the past year? You know, just getting to know the neighborhood better uh, because the YMCA is closed up at the North Valley Y. Um, so I walk the hood a lot. I have a couple of different routes that I take. And so I'm getting to know my neighbors and, and the lay of the land out here. That's probably the closest thing to a new hobby that I have. No, I think that's great. I've been preaching the benefits of walking, uh, just especially when you're isolated at home. Like you're probably more likely to be sitting in front of a computer all day and just having, yeah, just having some routes to walk around the neighborhood. We've, we live pretty close to uh, a handful of different traffic circles. And so when we first moved here, I was like, I don't know where I am at all. And I'd be two blocks from my house. And now I'm just like, okay, take a left here. I'm like seven minutes away from my house. I take it right here. It's 12 minutes away. I've got it down pat. And it's, it is, it is fun to see, you know, see familiar faces around the neighborhood as you're, as you're walking around for sure. One of my motivators is uh, I get a subscription to the LA times hits the driveway every morning and being a 
human resources guy, or at least retired from that, um, had a keen interest in a lot of things, including the obituaries. So I read those every single day, and there are a lot of dudes younger than me that have cashed in, you know, and so I'm just trying to keep it going here. If I'm walking, I'm just trying to keep myself healthy. And uh, another motivator would be uh, the fact that uh, I'm a first-time grandfather about six days ago. Uh, my, my only child, uh, our son, Zach, and his wife, Erica, had a baby uh, on Valentine's Day. And so I want to be around to be able to um, teach that young man, uh, Elio Laszlo, this is the first and middle name, uh, you know, the finer points of you know, free throw shooting and you know, knee, elbow, wrist, and all that stuff. <laughs> is Zach uh, into, into basketball as well? You know, he, um, he humors me by being into it a little bit. He's a, he's a working artist, um, and he's, he's quite uh, skilled at it. Um, but, you know, he, he follows sports um, to a certain degree. I, I don't think he's as passionate about it as I am. But we do talk sports from time to time. Nice, nice. So you've got some work to do with Elio, is what you're saying. <laughs> exactly, yeah. It's, it's never-ending. <laughs> Absolutely. And another question I always like to ask mainly because it's you doing the work for me, which I'm, I'm all about as a host, is, is having the guests help me out. But a question that you wish you were asked more frequently, and for you, it's, this, this is me asking you, and then you, we're getting real meta here, but the, the question you wish you were asked more frequently is, I'm thinking of writing my first novel. What's the best advice you can give me? And as someone who's written three novels, I imagine you've got some good advice. <laughs> Yeah, uh, one of the things I mentioned earlier, which is, you know, before you do anything, tell everybody you know you're doing it, of course, uh, so key. Um, another thing is, uh, you'll notice from time to time, you, you, you hear things coming through your head. They kind of come in one side of your head, not the other. And that's something or somebody trying to get your attention. So it's really important to write that stuff down, to document it, because it's fleeting and it, it goes really fast. Um, and sort of an extension of that is um, I, my wife got me this thing that I never heard of it before called an aqua pad, where it's uh, basically just a normal uh, pad of paper. It has a couple of suction cups that sticks onto the shower glass, and there's a number two pencil next to it, and it's chemically treated so you can write on it in the shower. So when you're showering, all these negative ions are flying around, and, and um, you, your thinking sort of frees up, and you come up with things, and, and uh, maybe it's a quote or part of a storyline or something like that write it down and then, uh, you know, you towel off and um, get yourself set and then head over to the office to, to transcribe it and try to make it work. So those two things, um, I think also uh, read every book you can read that you can, that you can tolerate on how to write a book. Um, we all know what a good one reads like, but writing one's a whole different thing. So if you need help on dialogue and read a book on how to do dialogue, uh, you know, story, um, uh, character development, storyline, that kind of thing, you know, do the research to teach yourself the craft. And then I guess the last thing would be um, source a really good editorial crew. You know, don't rely on your English teacher or your aunt or anything like that. I'm sure they're smart and everything, but find somebody who does this for a living. If it's a novel, you know, get somebody who specializes in developmental editing then line editing and then copy editing and then proofreading. It's so vitally important that every single word in your book has to be there for a reason and it's gotta be really clean. And if you're gonna self-publish, then your book has to read and look like it was published by one of the big publishing houses. Yes, I wholeheartedly agree. First of all, I'm adding the Aquapad to my shopping list uh, because that sounds phenomenal. And I wholeheartedly agree with editing. I know the 
we've, we've been talking, I am putting together a collection of short stories and when I was first doing it, I was like, yeah, I'll just like write them and then I'll come back and edit, you know, I'll let them sit for a little while, I'll come back and edit them. And I did. Like, I think that's a good thing to, to ha- have done a self-edit before you're working with an editor. But the amount of things that they found that I never would have even spotted is just from from like every, like you were talking about, like from the initial uh, like copy edit to line editing to proofreading, they were all catching different things. And I'm just like. I'm glad uh, I'm glad I worked with a solid crew like you're saying of, of people that do this for a living because they're looking at it with such a keen eye that you just don't have when you're writing. It's vitally important to check your ego out the door in that process. Can't stress that strongly enough. When I wrote my first uh, book, I had read the first draft probably a dozen times and I thought it was perfect. Everything was great. Like I didn't even need an editor. And I when I sent it off and I started getting all these comments back. I realized I was in over my head. And uh, you know, the importance of relying on somebody who, who's done this for a living. In my case, you know, she had done it for four and a half decades. And um, it's really, really key to find good talent to help you. And it's funny too. Like, I don't know if, if you ran across any kind of foibles uh, or like things that you do that you didn't realize you did. For me, it was starting sentences with well which I don't even do in life. But for whatever reason, when I'm writing dialogue, it's just like, well, that's something you should learn. And I'm like, huh, I should cut this out. <laughs> yeah, the, the well and the, and the you know, pretty and really and all those words that kind of clog things up. Um, I, you know, I learned not to use them through some of the books I read about how to write correctly. And then a good editor that I had, um, you know, weeded them out as well. Uh, there's a book uh, by a guy named Benjamin Dreyer called Dreyer's English. He's a copy editor and he wrote this really brilliant book. It's fun to read about, um, you know, how to, how to do this process correctly and how to understand Chicago manual style. Uh, so any resource you can grab, um, in, in, including getting a Chicago manual style online subscription, because if you could try to stay within that framework, you're going to save some money on the editorial side. Somebody's not going to have to spend as much time fixing your numbers and your letters and your military terms and all that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. And because I did just see a discussion around this, and because you are a writer, is there a word? I thought this was a great question. Is there a word that you, despite being a writer for a living, despite earning money from writing, is there a word that you always misspell? Yeah, um, ever and even. I tend to, that's invisible to me. Nice. <laughs> uh, as a sports writer, I've, a few of my stories were published with the wrong word in there. And boy, there's not a whole big enough to crawl into at that point. Uh, that's certainly one. Uh, yeah, for me, it's just sometimes some um, words are missing and I can't see it. Uh, th- th- that's probably the two things. Nice. For me, it was misspell for the longest time. And then uh, wow. I told someone that and they were like, oh, just think of it like a teacher, like misspell. And I was like, oh, and it's it's worked for me since then, at least. So I always love having the little mnemonic devices for that. All right, Craig, you're almost off the hook here. We always like to wrap up with a top three. And this is another one that you prompted us with. And I, I like to think that we uh, we get along on a lot of topics. We agree on a lot of things. We have similar interests. But this one, you're on your own for this one of your top three current favorite American IPAs. Oh, boy. Okay. Uh, uh, Latitude 33 Blood Orange IPA. Discovered it at the Whole Foods Market. Just the right amount of citrus and uh, uh, tar in there. It's beautiful. Uh, there's one called Dust Bowl IPA I recently discovered. 
And the third one would be a brewery called Three Weavers. And it's called the Expatriate IPA. It's out of Inglewood, California. And every time I drink one of these, I think this is the best beer I've ever had. So those are my top three. I'd love to hear yours. Very nice. Well, I am I, a, not an IPA fan at all. And okay. I, our, the, the other podcast I have, Parks and Rec'd, my co-host Sean, is a big IPA fan. So I will make sure that he hears these recommendations. I, I, I would say, I'm trying to think now what my... I feel like I'm I'm pretty varied with beer um outside of IPAs like I can I can get down with most other ones. I guess my top 3 lately is Love Street, a Kolsch style beer from Harbach Brewing Company out I think I think they're based outside of Austin but like in between Austin and Houston. Although don't don't quote me on that. I don't know the exact location. Uh, I also am a big fan of Live Oak Hefeweizen. I mean, Hefs are Always pretty tasty, anyway. Um, but I'm, I'm a. There's especially. I'm just like this is this is a nice mix. You take that with an orange wedge. Yes, yes, absolutely. I, that's why I'll order it when I'm. Out. I'm like I could get a six pack of this for like eight bucks, but when I'm out, I'll pay six dollars to have the cut orange wedge on it. And uh, this is a, a side tangent, but um, a couple of weeks ago we went to uh, an event at Still Austin, uh, which is a whiskey distillery, and. I had a cocktail called a Wakey Wakey Morning Bakey, and it uh, was bourbon and, and maple syrup and a few other things in there. And the garnish, instead of an orange or lemon or lime, was a powdered donut that had a little hole cut out of it uh, and then stuck on the side. And I thought that was delightful. But um, the part that was in the cocktail, you know, because a little, little bit gets dipped in, that was not great. <laughs> but the rest of the donut was a nice garnish. Um, and then to actually share the third beer, I'll go, uh, since it's been a little cold here, I'll go with the Pecan Porter, uh, which is from 512 Brewery, which is a little, you know, a little heavier. Uh, porters are uh, a little more filling. I probably couldn't drink five or six in a sitting like I could of uh, some other kinds of beers. But uh, when when your bones need some warmth, it's always a good choice. Yeah, it's a good lineup right there, especially the finishing with the porter, strong play. Thank you, thank you. That's what I'm going for. Get get a strong starting five, and then uh, fall apart once we get to the bench. <laughs> Good deal. Well, Craig, if people want to learn more about you, pick up one or, as I would recommend, all three books in this trilogy. Where can they go? Uh, best way to do that is just my website, uh, craigleaner.com, and I'll spell it C R A I G L E E N E R dot com. Everything's right there. Uh, at Craig Leaner on Twitter two ways to reach me. I uh, return all my mail. So, um, you know, fire away. Fantastic. Well, Craig, thank you so much for coming on. Now a three-time participant on Joey Podcasts. Uh, first time good people, cool things, but we're looking forward to having you back on down down the road. We'll talk some more hoops and writing. I hope you will consider me as your point man here in Chatsworth, California, Joey. Absolutely. And you you know this is a trend already. We got to end with a corny joke. What insect is the best at basketball? Uh, what's that? A score pn. Get after it today, people. <laughs> Thanks for having me on, Joe. I really appreciate it. Good people, cool things is produced in Austin, Texas. If you dug this episode, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. Whether you're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podchaser, or any other podcast app. I want to keep delivering great content to you. 
you want to keep hearing it. Tap that subscribe button. We'll see you next time. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, void, or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.